This is Car Expert. I think for me, the thing that impressed me was the overall comfort and refinement of the X-Trail e-Power. After all the ways that brand has moved away from what it once stood for, it couldn't hang on a little bit longer to one of those core driving engagement sort of things that, that we all love as enthusiasts. Look, this is a new generation Gran Turismo. When you're up at about 3,000, all hell breaks loose. Tony Crawford, Hello. G'day, Mandy. And How are you? I'm fabulous now that you're oh, here. I took a photo of a really, really fantastic-looking beetle the other day. I'll send it to you after the podcast. Please do. I always enjoy getting photos from you. Um, Scott Colley, hello. Hello, Mandy. I'm uh, a little bit disappointed to have been pushed down the introduction standings <laughs> below like a community notice board now. <laughs> Scully, you know what Croft sent me the other day? Photos of chocolate in the shape of Volkswagen beetles. Crawford, I remember when you used to send me romantic chocolate photos. <laughs> I'll get back into that, mate. <laughs> Andy, I'm so disappointed I didn't buy them for you. I saw the photo and thought, why didn't I buy them? Yeah. And that was in Japan, by the way. Would you um, be allowed to bring them back, though, through customs? Oh, yeah. No, oh, you no, can. Prob- no problem with wrapped goods like that. Yeah. yeah. That looked so realistic. That was incredible. Yeah. Um, so, like, guys, the I think it's the third season of Drive to Survive. Um, the behind the scenes of the F one uh, story is is out. You guys been following? It's actually we're up to season five now. Oh, really? Um, I'm so far behind. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I, I was a bit of a Formula One fan before. My girlfriend is now a bit of a Formula One fan, and my mates are on the back of the doco. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out this season. But I'm a little bit bored of the format. I think Mm. Um, between the tennis one, I watched the golf one that came out a couple of weeks ago. And just the fact that now that I'm following F1 more closely, you can sort of see where they've manufactured drama. Yeah. Drive to survive. I think this year. That's the, that's been the criticism, hasn't it? They've lost that uh, natural edge of the uh, inaugural series. Yeah. I've heard a couple of people saying that, you know, if you sort of know what's going on, you can see where they're making things more than they are or less than they are. And, mm-hmm. and I think obviously that's always going to be the case with the doco, but it does feel like now that a lot of the stuff's been explained and obviously 2021 was such an incredible season, but 2022 was a bit more boring. It does feel like they're going to have to dig, dig a bit deeper into the trick bag to, to make it interesting. Mm. Have you guys been watching Clarkson's Farm season two? I haven't, Mandy. I heard it's really good, though. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Season yeah. one was, like, surprisingly good, um, yeah. you know, especially given Top Gear late and then the Grand Tour didn't really hit the heights of the Top Gear stuff we loved early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I was blown away by how much I enjoyed Season one. And, I, yeah, I plan to watch Season two as well. It's Mandy, I'm a Harry Metcalf fan. I don't know if you know him. but um, Heard of him. Who is he again? He does great videos of a lot of cars he owns. He has a collection of all. The, you would love it, Mandy. Yeah. He, got, uh, he was the publisher, I believe, for Evo magazine. Evo, I think he's sold it. Yeah, oh, um, nice. I think he sold it now. Yeah, but he's very well off and has everything from Countach's to classic Lanches to all sorts of stuff in his garage on his palatial oh, British countryside he, home. His reviews are really good, don't you reckon, Scully? They're really natural and um, doesn't take himself too, too seriously and. You know, he knows these cars and he you can get the sense of excitement when he's driving an old Lotus Elise around the countryside. You know, it's really, really genuine. I think you and he are quite similar, Croft, because you're both, I would imagine, a similar age and you both really love to delve into the, the real nitty-gritty details of a car. He has more money. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get stuck into this week's car news with Jade and Jack. To talk about this week's car news, we've got the dream team on this week, Jade Credentino and Jack Quick. Hello, guys. Hello. How are you, Mandy? Um, now, let's start off with uh, you, Jack. Um, I can't believe this, or every car enthusiast won't believe this either. Mini has axed the manual gearbox. That is exactly correct. Could be gone forever. So it's a big call and certainly a sign of the times, I would say. Um, so Mini Australia has confirmed uh, it won't return a manual transmission to its current generation models. Uh, this follows uh, the company um, axing the manual option in May last year uh, due to semiconductor and wiring harness shortages. Um, at the time, it was somewhat hopeful because Mini Australia said it would come back in early 2023. Uh, this is no longer the case. <laughs> so it's gone for current generation models. Uh, this decision was apparently made due to uh, to make sure it's uh, meeting customer demands. So that is the, the line that Mini Australia is currently going with. Um, but when Back in the day, uh, now I suppose, uh, Mini uh, previously offered 27 out of uh, the 47 model, model variants it, uh, it offered with a, a six-speed manual as a, non a no-cost option. And that's, that's obviously, if you do the math, it's over half of its uh, the vehicles that it offers, in, the variants it offers in Australia. But um, even though I did this during 2021 when the option was still available, uh, manuals only accounted for 104 out of 3,579 sales. If you do the math for that, it's 2.9% of sales. So very, very little. Um, but it's still sad to see them go anyway. But um as I said uh, at the start, we're current generation models. MIDI has a whole heap of new models coming out very shortly, and it's also getting ready to go all electric, uh, which will likely spell spell the end of the manual transmission as a whole for the company because you don't have a manual transmission in, in EVs uh, typically. Um the, at this stage, the last internal combustion Mini model will launch in 2025, and by 2030, every single Mini will be electric. But I'd love to know, guys, are you surprised by the move to get rid of the manuals? I can't believe this. I mean, I know it's only 2.9% of gross sales, but, but there are certain individuals and and uh, enthusiasts uh, all over the world um, that would love to drive a mini John Cooper works with a manual gearbox. So my take is they should be offering a limited edition high-performance mini with a manual gearbox. That's mm -hmm. my take. And then you – they probably wouldn't – if they limited the number, I don't believe there are certain taxes that they get off and discounted if they bring in a certain limited number. So they could get away with, you know, certain things with it regarding that. But it's not about the numbers or the people, the take-up rate. It's about offering your customers, you know, what Mini have always done and offering a Mini a, a manual gearbox, surely. I mean, that's my take. No, I totally agree with you, Croft. And I think one of the big criticisms of Mini recently has been that it's abandoned its roots. The cars are getting bigger, they're heavier, they're more complex. Um, I think offering a manual is one way that Mini can still – be connected to its history. I get that it needs to do something a little bit different in 2023, but yeah, it's a real shame that 
in after all the ways that brand has moved away from what it once stood for, it couldn't hang on a little bit longer to, to one of those core driving engagement sort of things that, that we all love as enthusiasts. I suppose the only bright side is there is a big update coming. Um, we know that alongside the electric version, alongside the Ace Man and the new Countryman, there's going to be a very heavy refresh of the current car. Hopefully with that, we get a JCW farewell special or something with a kitschy British name with a manual transmission. I don't know what they'll call it, um, but maybe, just maybe, there'll be one more go for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hope you're going to be right there, Scully. Uh, now we're going to move on to uh, the 2023 Toyota Corolla GR. We have all the details for this. Jade, hit us up. Yeah, so Toyota have released the pricing and specs for the 2023 GR Corolla. Now, pricing for the base model GTS starts from $62,300 before on-road costs. And then you've got the flagship Maurizio edition, which is $77,800 before. Ouch. Yes. So... um, (laughs) going to be a limited range uh, coming to Australia in its first year of production. So there's 700 units confirmed for the GTS and only 25 for the Maurizio. So there's going to be quite a limited availability across the range. Now, the Maurizio edition will join the GTS in the coming months. So we'll see um, the GTS come to Australia first um, and then there'll be a slight delay between that and the flagship. Jade, sorry, are they drive away prices? No, those are before no, on road costs, costs, and then you obviously have the options on top of that as well. So you've got the platform which shares the GR Yaris, which um, is a 1.6 litre three cylinder turbocharged petrol engine with 221 kilowatts of power and 370 newton meters of torque. Now it's worth mentioning that the Maurizio edition does have the same kilowatt output but does have an extra 30 newton meters of torque. The GTS standard equipment um in obviously relation to racing and being a little bit more of a hot hatch, you do get front and rear Torsen limited slip diffs. You also get three different driving modes, Toyota Connected Services and Yokohama tyres. Now, if you opt for the flagship, you do miss out on rear seats, parking sensors, wireless phone charging, but you do get 18-inch BBS forged alloy wheels, um, as well as Michelin tyres. Now, I want to know, do you guys think this has the potential to take over the hot hatch segment and why? I am going to get in before Crawford here because I'd like just for some common sense to lead this conversation. (laughs) Um, I actually think Toyota has done a really good job with the pricing of this GR Corolla. Uh, I get that it's expensive for a Corolla. I get it's got a limited back seat and boot, but Ultimately, it's a very similar price to the uh, Honda Civic Type R drive away. It's going to be similarly limited in Australia, but it has all-wheel drive and offers something that the Civic doesn't in that it's a bit of a rally-inspired car as opposed to just a track-ready car. So I think Toyota's done a good job positioning it. I think they've also avoided crazy drive-away deals like they launched the GR Yaris with because they now know that people will snap them up. And I think the fact they're making efforts to stop scalpers buying them and flipping them for huge profits is a move in the right direction as well. I think what's going to hold it back is supply. I mean, what was it, Jade? 500 in the first year? So you've got 700 of the GTS in the first year and then only 25 for the Maurizio. 
Yeah. So I think that's going to be the challenge. There's going to be at least 750 people who want this car. I have no doubt in the first year on sale. Um, whether Toyota can up production for 2024 and get us some more is probably going to be the defining factor of whether it really starts taking over the segment or whether it remains a real curiosity. All right, Crawf, your time to shine. Yeah, well, I completely disagree with that. Um, <laughs> utterly, in fact. Um, when you can buy a Yaris with exactly the same power uh, and arguably quicker through the corners for substantially less and almost identical performance figures. So I really don't know why you'd buy a larger vehicle, which, by the way, has one of the smallest boots in the hatch uh, segment. Sorry, Corp, um, I can tell you why you'd buy a larger vehicle, and that's because you are a larger person. I don't fit in a GR Yaris. My, my do you would do you help in the Maurizio edition, of course, um, with no seats in the rear for 77000 plus on roads, people. That's going to take you to about eighty-two potentially. Um for a Corolla hot hatch, well, good luck with that. Um, but fortunately, there's only 25 of those, so um, they'll be a collector's item and bought by collectors and probably stored in a garage somewhere, I suspect, and uh, with mothballs uh, and all the rest of the stuff that you get with hoarding a car like that. But anyway, I think the uh, Type R uh, is a far more serious machine uh, for the dedicated enthusiast and that's where I will stand and leave it. Croft, have you driven a GR Corolla yet? I haven't. Oh. I haven't. <laughs> Scully rests his case. <laughs> I don't want to drive one. Maybe I will. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, let's talk Utes, Jack. Um, the 2024 Ram 1500 Rev electric pickup has been previewed. Yeah, that's right, Mandy. So this is Ram's first electric pickup truck. And although we got the concept a few um, a month ago or so, this is the production version. This is what's actually going to be coming in, uh, going uh, introducing in the US, should say, and uh, with customers getting rather than the crazy concept, which looked really cool. Um, so yeah, this Ram fifteen hundred REV uh, was first previewed at this year's Super Bowl as part of a commercial. And um, this stage is set to be introduced in the US in the fourth quarter of 2024, which is still a little way away at this stage. Um, there's no word yet on an, an Australian launch, so don't hold your hopes just yet, but don't be surprised if it does come, I suppose, in a way. Um, in the lead-up, though, uh, Ram has shown off some photos of this 1500 REV uh, with barely any other info. It's just basically the pictures. <laughs> uh, Ram has confirmed it will have uh, a frunk, which is very typical for EVs, um, with power outlets of unspecified uh, potential or capacity or whatever. Uh, there are also, uh, in the pictures, you can see Ram box storage compartments, um, which are in the, the, the tub. Um, I suppose I can't really do the arm movement, but that's how they open. They open up and you can store things in the, the wheel arch compartment. Um, but as I said, there's barely any other info. We do know that it will have a vehicle to load, vehicle to home, and also vehicle to vehicle charging options. Uh, 
Uh, as I mentioned at the start, compared to the, the Ram 1500 revolution concept, which was said to be revolutionary, um, this uh, there was a real month, month ago, this actual production vehicle is very similar to the combustion-powered 1500 ute. It's more like uh, the relationship between the Ford F-150 and the F-150 Lightning than the uh, Chevrolet Silverado and the Silverado EV for a bit of context if you haven't seen the images already. Uh, the main differences, I suppose, between the combustion 1500 and the electric are the different headlights and taillights mainly. That's really about it. Um, this 1500 REV electric ute will use the STLA frame architecture by Stellantis uh, that can support up to uh, between, sorry, 159 and 200 kilowatt hour batteries, which is huge, by the way, and uh, electric motors uh, producing between 150 and 330 kilowatts of power. Um, uh, Stellantis has also said range uh, on vehicles based on this STLA frame architecture can uh, can be claimed up to 800 Ks, which sounds very good in a ute if it can achieve that. Um, but what are your thoughts on this Ram 1500 REV? Are you a little disappointed like I am? It's sort of hard to have too many thoughts when it looks that dull, isn't it? Um, it's a real shame that Ram hasn't gone through and done what they did with the concept, which was like a six-seat electric ute with all sorts of performance and promise of revolutionising the segment. This, yeah, just looks like a, a dressed-up Ram 1500. I'm quite disappointed by it. Uh, I'm just hoping that maybe the way it drives will make up for it because we've heard really positive things on the back of Will Stop Forge review of the F-150 Lightning um, and reviewers are loving the Rivian R1T. Maybe when you get behind the wheel, that's where the excitement will come. So with uh, right-hand drive, um, how does that affect the conversion process with batteries and all that? Does anyone know? At this stage, I, I really don't know. Um, from my understanding, the it could be more complicated, less complicated, because I suppose in a way with electric vehicles, it's just kind of a little bit simpler than like a petrol or diesel engine. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. I think from memory, what Atiko, the local distributor for Ram locally, has um, said that they're, they're keeping an eye out for the 1500 REV. So we'll have to wait and see if it actually comes. So wait, watch this space is what, is what I'll go with. <laughs> I think um, mechanically it should be simpler given there's no exhaust manifolds, differentials, that sort of thing to get in the way, which are often part of the challenge of converting a car when you've got to get the steering column and that sort of thing yeah. across. Yeah. But uh, one of the big challenges with electric vehicles in general at the moment is training because obviously if you're dealing with a high-voltage battery um, – you know, yeah. it, it brings all sorts of new challenges that you don't have to worry about with an internal combustion car. So I would imagine whether or not supply is available, there's still quite a bit of training that needs to be done before it's ready to be converted at scale. Um, I have no doubt, though, that Atiko and Walkinshaw as well, who made a brilliant business out of uh, remanufacturing utes in right-hand drive, are, uh, are very keen to get it rolling. Yeah, 100%. Indeed. All right, and our last story, Jade, it looks like the uh, Victorian government yep. has come up with new ways of raising more revenue, getting more money off us. <laughs> this time it involves laws to do with our mobile phones and cards. Yes, so these laws already exist in a similar capacity uh, in other states around Australia, but Victoria has um, officially from the 1st 
31st of March this year, going to be enforcing new laws for drivers who are caught using their mobile phones with camera technology. So, Fines can start from $555 and include four demerit points for illegal use of a mobile phone, which can then increase to over $1,800 if the matter is heard in court. So drivers need to be aware that basically they cannot touch, scroll, take video calls, um, even if their phone is on a cradle. Um, They also cannot have the phone resting on any part of their body or physically be passing it to another passenger. So different rules apply for professional drivers such as taxis or car share or truck drivers. Um, So it's best to head to the article in the show notes for the full list. Now, Queensland and New South Wales, like I mentioned, have also rolled out the camera capturing technology. Um, And since May 2021, they have recorded over 100,000 offences. I basically want to know what do you guys think of the new laws? Um, And do you think it will actually stop drivers from using their mobile phones? I'm going to butt in quickly before Scully. uh, it's quite uh, amb- ambiguous in that they, you can't, uh, even if it's mounted in a cradle, you can't enter text, numbers or symbols, scroll or take video calls, nor can you uh, obviously view video games, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you can, however, use it to manage an audio call, stream music, adjust volume or navigation or use navigation. So uh, is that not ambiguous to anyone else? or? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm ambiguous, Croft. The rules are different for P-platers, fully licensed drivers, and higher car drivers, which is, is just it, – it completely blows my mind that they think they can enforce this for one. But also, if the rules are there to stop distracted driving, surely distracted driving is distracting for everyone, regardless of whether you're driving a car with an Uber sticker on it or not. It, Yeah, I, I have no idea how they're going to enforce it um, because – like if I argue that I was scrolling through my contacts to press phone call, that's fine, but I can't spot scroll through Spotify. I think the fact that if it goes to court, you can be fined more is potentially a way for the Victorian government to try to stop people from challenging these fines, which if it is the case is just I don't know, questionable at best. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I completely understand the need to stop people texting while driving. It, it's really common. It's a really common cause of accidents and, rather than focus on one kilometre an hour over the speed limit. It's a very logical thing to, to look at dealing with. But complicated rules that vary based on how old you are and what you're doing with your phone are absolutely not the answer. So yeah. Um, yeah. I'm watching with interest for the first of these cases that goes to court. Uh, and I'm, yeah, intrigued to see how it all goes. Personally, I wouldn't buy uh, a new car unless it had uh, CarPlay or Android Auto. Mm. That's me. Um, I, I might be different, but... Um, for me, that takes care of everything, and um, and it's something all manufacturers should be into, and most of them are, uh, for the sake they don't have to provide all these other ancillary devices within the car. They just have to plug into CarPlay, and you've got everything. And uh, I'm assuming you're allowed to touch the screen, if it's a touch screen, to change a track uh, or, or switch from message to phone or navigation to music, etc. This is the thing I can't work out, though. It's exactly the same distraction. 
It's still looking at a screen and scrolling. If if it's if your phone's on a cradle, I actually feel like it's even safer because it's it's further up near your eye line. Some infotainment systems in cars are quite low and integrated into the dash. You've got to look a fair way down off the road to see what you're doing. I don't I don't get this. It's very true. Siri doesn't always uh, listen to what you're saying and uh, true. doesn't always com- compute um, the English English language. I think the other thing is like the cradle thing makes a lot of sense because it, theoretically the phone is up and in your eye line. But you can also buy cradles that sit the car, like the, the phone in a cup holder, for example, if you don't have an air vent or something to stick it to. Mm. And that puts it down at the line of the, the transmission tunnel and that's legal. But l- resting your phone in the cup holder while Google Maps is open is illegal. I get that obviously there's going to be grey areas with laws and like you can't just expect them to answer all these questions up front but it just seems so vague and and yeah. so difficult to enforce mm. um yeah I, I i can't quite wrap my head around it mm. Jack, and by the you- way um th- there's another question too if you're in a major accident and a major someone slams into you from the back and that cradle and that phone goes flying into your head uh, i don't know whether they've thought about that deeply enough but Flying objects in cars in big accidents uh, are killer. Mm, absolutely. You got any thoughts, Jack, seeing as you're a Melbourneian? Yeah, I do have some thoughts, actually. I uh, In my gymney in particular, I have uh, a little phone cradle. Although I do have CarPlay in my car, um, I like to just have it uh, near the air vent. It's like a, a dual-cab butte tradie cup holder accessory that I have. So it's of sorts. Um, I have it in there when it's connected. But and I'm just like Crawford. I, I would want a car with CarPlay um I suppose it's just a nicety to have and you don't have to worry about connecting a phone, I suppose, for the majority of the time. But I I have – it's good to be cracking down on this, although it is ambiguous and confusing for all the different drivers because I've seen – so many drivers on freeways just driving home from work uh, to and from from work on YouTube, watching a video while on the freeway, while doing multitasking and it's just – it, it just needs to be fixed. And I am just kind of like Scott in the way that this, I don't know if this is the exact way to be doing it to make it so specific and confusing, but something needs to be done to make it clearer and just people need to stop using their phones for, for the wrong thing. That's what, yeah. that's, that's what I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Very well summed up there, Jack. Um, now, as Jade said before, um, for the full details of all those new uh, rules, you can head to carexpert.com.au. Jade Credentino and Jack Quick. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Thank guys. you, Mandy. Now, it's about time the Toyota RAV4 Hybrid had some competition, and it comes in the form of the Nissan X-Trail e-Power with e-Force. Yes, that is its name. James Wong had the opportunity to drive and review this car, and he joins us now. Hello, J-Wo. Hello, Mandy and team. Uh, This model must be a pretty important milestone for Nissan. Yeah, so there have been hybrid versions of some of its models in the past. Um, They used to offer a hybrid Pathfinder here, and they've offered the previous generation X-Trail with a hybrid drivetrain, but it never was available here. And as you can imagine, with 
the way that Toyota is just dominating the hybrid space at the moment. A lot of other manufacturers, at least from a local perspective, want to get in on the action given there's so many sales there available. Like, you know, basically people are begging for more options. Um, but so many brands just haven't been able to, you know, secure enough allocation from their global parents to justify selling things here. So to have a new electrified option in Basically, what is Australia's largest new vehicle segment is a big deal, irrespective of who it actually is. So at the moment, you've got the Toyota RAV4 Hybrid, you've got the GWM Havel H6 Hybrid, um, the Subaru Forester Hybrid, and then if you want to include the Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid in there as well, that's probably another option. But in terms of the top three sellers in that segment, you've only you've got the RAV4 and the Outlander, but the Outlander being a plug-in is quite premium. So what Nissan's doing here is they're, they're take, bringing in their take on hybrid tech. So ePower is a little bit different to what Toyota does in that it's series hybrid only in that there is a petrol engine, there are electric motors and there is a battery, but the um, the petrol engine never directly drives the wheels um, and doesn't have any sort of mechanical connection to the wheels. Instead, it works via an inverter to power, um, to to juice up the battery um, and the inverter can also drive the wheels, but the, the, the drive system is actually just electric. So um, in, in the case of the E-Force version, which is the one that we get at the moment, uh, they don't sell the two-wheel drive version here yet. Um, basically, you've got a dual motor electric drive system uh, for a system output of 157 kilowatts, which is you know, within the, within five kilowatts of a Rav4 hybrids combined claim, and um, Nissan's team uh, w- went very hard on saying that the, the whole pre- um, premise behind the e-power concept is to bring. Uh, a more engaging and more satisfying acceleration experience because uh, we had one of their, I think his 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 title was actually head of marketability at their like technical center in in the UK. So it's a, an interesting title, but anyway. <laughs> Um, basically, it, w- within their customer surveys, when they ask people in Europe what the most satisfying powertrain type is to drive, it starts off with EVs because they off- obviously offer very immediate and linear acceleration. Then it was petrol engines. Then a bit further down, it was diesel. And then very last was hybrid. So they tried to bring in the performance of the more preferable powertrain type, but without the plug-in and full EV capability that perhaps not a lot of people are ready to make the full switch to yet. So it's a very interesting and, and, and quite a technical and complex thing to explain. Um, and I sometimes don't know whether I fully grasp the technical parts, but it's definitely very interesting. Yeah. And um, from the launch that we did, uh, it actually, I feel, pays dividends in a lot of ways. Joe, it sound, I know you've just explained it quite well, but it, it sounds really complex. How is Nissan going to explain this to people who kind of have in their head the idea of either an electric car or what Toyota calls a self-charging hybrid? It's a really interesting question. And I think what Nissan has done, has they've really just put it to people in very, very basic terms. This is an, it drives like an EV, but you fill it up with petrol. That's, that's basically how they explain it. Um, it's, it's their stepping stone technology, so it appears they're not necessarily going to pursue plug-in hybrids like uh, Mitsubishi is on the same platform. But 
there. They're basically saying this will give you the, the driving experience of an EV, but you don't have to worry about plugging it in and all you have to do is fill it up with normal petrol like you would your normal car. That's that's how they're saying it in layman's terms to consumers and I think that's probably the best way of putting it if you're explaining it to somebody that perhaps won't grasp all the technical details of the drivetrain. Interesting. Um, is it priced well? Uh, it's priced, uh, okay, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this without it's <laughs> negative. So they're, they're only bringing in um, TI and TIL specifications at the moment, which for those that are unfamiliar with Nissan's um, grade structure, TI and TIL, TIL sorry, are the top spec grades. So the TI e-power is about 54, just over $54,000 plus on road costs. So it's about 60 drive away. And then the TIL is 67 plus on road costs, which, I oh know, sorry, 54,190 and 57,190, which means that the drive away price for the TIL is a little over 60 grand. Now, I didn't realize this when I first drove it, but the latest RAV4 range has seen fairly significant price rises for a lot of the hybrid models. And so the two X Trail variants sort of um, they, they sandwich the, the, RAV4 Edge hybrid in terms of drive-away pricing. So they'll start a little bit higher than a, a RAV4 Cruiser hybrid, but start a little bit below the RAV4 Edge hybrid if people sort of are comparing it to that um, that car specifically. Uh, but the, what the X-Trail does is actually physically, I think, a little bit bigger and overseas it offers a seven-seat option, which they haven't brought in here yet. Um, so I can't really use that as a point of difference. But, yeah, it's it's competitive with the market leader um, and spec for spec is significantly cheaper than a Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid. But in terms of, like, is it a complete bargain? Maybe like a, a Havel H6 hybrid, which is, you know, mid-40s for a top specification car? Perhaps not. You mentioned the RAV4. Um are you going to be able to get an e-power with e-force Nissan X-Trail 5-seater? That is a stupid name. Um, or are there going to be long delays like there are for the RAV4 hybrid? Yeah, so a, a few journalists at the press conference really wanted to ask this question to Nissan's executive team and they didn't really answer it with direct numbers or figures or anything like that. What the official line was is that they've secured um, appropriate supply for anticipated demand. And I think at the moment, uh, if you were to order one today, you'd probably be waiting the standard three to six months for your vehicle to arrive. Um, the first cars have already started landing um, from earlier in February. I actually saw one on the road this morning, so people are driving them. <laughs> um, yeah, and they seem to be showing up on the classifieds on dealer lots as well. So there are cars here. There are cars that are continuing to come as well. And I think um, whether they run into supply issues will probably depend on how well received it is from the Australian public but they seem to be pretty satisfied with the pre-order process and they seem to think that they can satisfy um, at least the demand from launch. How did you find uh, its efficiency? Yes, well, being a hybrid, efficiency is obviously a really big part of the vehicle assessment. Um, I was averaging 
I average different figures between the two different variants. So like we found in, we find in a lot of electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids, sometimes the wheel and tire package can make quite a difference in terms of the efficiency or range or whatever. Obviously, we're not trying to go for outright range in an X-Trail e-power, but efficiency is a good indicator. So in the X-Trail e-power with e-force in TI specification, I was getting high sixes. So I think I saw the lowest um, average on our drive was about 6.7 and it climbed to about 6.7. 6.9 in certain sections uh, and the TIL was between 7 and 7.2. Now, I will sort of note that our launch drive was not probably typical of what you would subject an X-Trail e-power to. We started off in the Sunshine Coast Airport and drove through the hinterlands in the Sunshine Coast all the way down to Brisbane, which is a lot of twisty, high-speed um quite hilly in sections as well drive with a few dirt sections thrown in there as well it was the kind of um test route that you would probably take for a performance suv if i'm honest so i think that with a bit more in town driving we would have seen that figure um creep a bit closer to the 6.1 liter per 100k combined claim and while i actually stayed a couple of extra days in brisbane to work out of our brisbane office with our lovely team up there and um, i was staying maybe one or two kilometers from the office and i did a little bit of um putting around brisbane in a brisbane in an x-trail tie power and there were some trips where i was only using three or four liters per 100k so it's definitely capable of achieving good numbers um i think it's largely down to the kind of driving that you're doing with it and in terms of the launch drive i think that was a fairly unique um sort of environment that you'll be testing it in i'd be really interested to get one through our Melbourne office, which we are doing in the next few weeks and just taking it on my standard commute to and from work, which would probably be a good indicator of what the efficiency is like because, you know, in high traffic situations where you're constantly braking and things like that, you're going to be able to recharge the battery, um, which is a a circa two kilowatt hour unit, um, but 1.8 kilowatt hour usable. So I did actually test... Um, in the EV mode, how far I could go, and actually managed to go about three k's without um, without needing to use the petrol engine, which is probably a lot more than you'll get out of a Rav Four. Given as soon as you pr- depress the throttle any more than ten percent, it'll kick in the petrol engine in the Toyota. So um, it's 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 very capable. I think we just need to. Um, perhaps use it in a more real world or appropriate environment for that vehicle that's more specific to what a typical buyer will do in order to really assess its efficiency. Did it have a a decent amount of performance? Yeah, that was something that really surprised me. So the the E Force drivetrain is sort of seen as like the more performancey one, and and they're really I think that's probably why they launched with it. Uh, the, it even though it has less power on paper than a Rav Four hybrid, it, they claim a seven second zero to one hundred time, which is actually quite brisk for a vehicle of that size. And it did feel that quick when when we drove it. It's got very good response. Um, the two motors work together quite well and keep performance quite linear um, right through. Uh, I went diving through some global specs to see if I could find a reference point and um, I've compared the UK spec X-Trail e-power with e-force against the um, Toyota RAV4 hybrid all-wheel drive and according to global specifications, the Nissan's about a second quicker to 100Ks an hour, which Hmm. I think from my memory of driving a RAV4 hybrid should be about right. So it definitely feels a lot more sprightly and as, as they're sort of 
pitching in with the e-power concept it definitely drives more like an ev so you don't get that weird shuffle between you know the different uh engines so sometimes with petrol electric hybrids that are parallel as well as series when you get that change in power source you can sometimes feel the the discrepancy in torque for example which is something that has probably plagued the toyota hybrid system for a really long time you get quite immediate response when you lift up when you launch with the electric motor but as soon as the electric motor hands over to the petrol engine you sort of feel the gap there and um you know it, it'll flare revs with a cvt that can um be a little bit unrefined whereas the the e-power system sort of sets different steps so they showed us a graph where like in normal driving it'll sort of keep the engine at about 2000 revs where you know the turbo can spool up and it's making a lot of t- it's it's torque to charge the engine most efficiently and then as speeds rise it'll sort of step it up a little bit to make it um contextual to the speed you're doing so it doesn't feel out of place when like you know you're going hard throttle but nothing's happening from the powertrain or it's the opposite in the inverse in other situations so yeah it definitely performed well um there's it's got torque vectoring and things like that so it's very grippy um in a lot the stuff that we were driving it on again is not very typical of what a buyer would do but it um held on admirably and the all the driver controls are are pretty well sorted if not super um engaging and direct so you know it, it the steering is accurate but it's a little bit slow and it's a little bit light so it doesn't necessarily give you the confidence to really punt it but again i don't i can't see why you would be doing that in an x trail of all things um but it's very secure very very accurate and and still very comfortable that that, i think for me the thing that really really impressed me was the overall comfort and refinement of the x trail e-power it's incredibly quiet even when the engine's running um it's it really well insulated from road and wind noise um even at 110 k's an hour on course chip roads especially for that til that's riding on um specific 20 inch alloys that you can't get anywhere else on the range normally a, a mainstream um, vehicle with that kind of wheel and tire package will suffer from a refinement point of view um, it definitely wasn't the case the only real issue with that tire package is that the ride was a little bit firmer and so on some section like we did some gravel sections so on the the, the gravel and pebbles and whatever it can get a little bit jittery um, whereas the ti was felt much better much well more well sorted uh but yeah, it, I have to say, like, other than the fact that the efficiency can't match a Toyota hybrid, everything else, in my opinion, was better. So it, it it's a really, really well-rounded package. I just hope they can bring a two-wheel drive version because what I've seen from international reviews and international specifications, the two-wheel drive versions of e-powers um, should be very, very efficient. Um, people have been able to achieve, you know, around five liters per hundred k's in a Qashqai, um, as and you know, high fives, low sixes in the X Trail. So I think it's entirely possible for them to do a little bit better on the efficiency front so it'll be interesting to see how that all goes in the in later this year when the Qashqai e-power launches as well yeah. jay more broadly and croft i know you've driven the x-trail as well how do yeah. you feel like the cabin of the x-trail the space on offer the luxury and that sort of thing stack up relative to a rav4 i think it's better yeah. Um, the, the yeah. design and execution of the new X-Trail and, and all of new Nissan's new SUVs actually, for that matter, is so much better, not just the, compared to the old 
Nissan product, but also relative to the segment. Um, we were, I know that most of us have been quite impressed with the new Outlander because that was quite a, a step above the previous generation, but the Nissan takes that one step further and definitely feels a cut above the Mitsubishi um, and compared to something like a RAV4 as well. I think it just feels that little bit more upmarket. Um, it's more consistent in terms of fit and finish and the infotainment displays are a little, feel a little bit more high-end as well. Yeah. Um, I will say that the RAV4, particularly in edge specification, is maybe better catered to a bit more rough and tumble stuff um, with some of the seat materials used and, you know, the chunky rubberized mm. switch gear and stuff like that. But if you're looking for something that feels more befitting of the price, I think the X-Trail has a more upmarket feel that's befitting of that six, uh, you know, circa $60,000 drive away price compared to, say, a top spec RAV4. Yeah, they really nailed it. I, I wanted to chime in there. The and the refinement of uh, Nissan's new SUVs, both um, both the Pathfinder and the X Trail, it's really quite exceptional um, for that segment. Um, and the the feedback that you get from the all the major controls, they're really linear, as Jay has already indicated. Uh, and to think they've brought the uh, to brought a, a competitor to the Rav Four out. I hope they can get stock and. Um, and uh, do some damage, yeah? Indeed. Well, you've given that car a uh, car expert rating of 8.1, and that review is live now if you'd like to go and read it. Thank you, James Wong. Thanks for having me. As we know, Tony, you can talk about any car for as long as we allow you to, and uh, I'm sure the same can also be said for the latest fast car you've driven, the 2023 Maserati Gran Turismo. I'm going to let you say this because you say it better than me. (laughs) Folgare. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Maserati Gran Turismo Folgare. Now, that is, of course, the electric version, but there are two petrol versions as well, the Modena and the Trofeo. So, so we have all three at the launch in Italy. And um, although we were based near the airport in Rome, which is not the most salubrious part of, uh, of Rome, um, we, we did get to go out uh, to a place called Nepi, about 60 k's out of Rome into the countryside and that beautiful rolling hills and all that uh, to explore these cars. And um, the electric car we didn't spend a hell of a lot of time in, probably about an hour and a half, where the petrol cars we spent more time. But look, this is a new generation Gran Turismo. So the previous generation came out in 2007. So it's been around for ages uh, before Maserati uh, completely redeveloped the car. Now, you may not think that, from the from the outside because it does look very similar in fact we did a uh, we did a zoom meeting last year on this and they told us they had a clean sheet and uh, normally with a clean sheet you get a very different design but um, they uh, say that they uh, in their uh, chats and talks and uh, focus groups with the current uh, Gran Turismo owners and and the, and the current Gran Turismo or the old Gran Turismo now was selling very well. Um, in fact, it was increasing sales in some markets like Japan and Australia. So to, to, to go and do a completely different design, you may fail um, in doing what you're trying to do. Mm. And Scully, yeah, have a quick uh, mention there. Well, Croft, what I really want to know about, not for the electric, but for the petrol car, is how it sounds. Because that old one, although it's a bit awkward looking from some angles, although it's a bit old inside, although it's not as fast as modern supercars, it is the best sounding car on the road or very close to it. 
Well, the V8, yeah, 100%, um, uh, for sure. And there is no more V8 because what this Maserati has in terms of its petrol versions is the MC20 V6 turbo, twin turbo Natuno engine. Um, now, you know, it's a supercar engine effectively detuned for the Gran Turismo. So it, it does sound amazing. I, I did question the fact that why don't I have a, uh, a butterfly valve button where I can just open the valves up at 30Ks because um, uh, uh, Scott is co- completely correct in the V8 was you could do 30Ks an hour and sound like you're running down Le Mans on the main straight. <laughs> um, and, and, and we all love that noise, of course. And, um, but look, when you're up at about 3,000 and all hell breaks loose with this car, even in the Modena, so I was driving the Modena first, and I opened it up on the Autostrada, which is a kin a, equivalent to the Autobahn in Germany, basically. And although there are speeds, the Italian police are all enthusiasts. <laughs> so they <laughs> they welcome you to uh, give the car a boot. They love that. What about the cameras, Croft? Um, I, I didn't see any cameras on this part. I think they carefully selected the chosen route. Uh, and if, and if, <laughs> we've, we've done that before with Lamborghini in Italy, and I, we never received a uh, – I'm sure we went through about 35 of them. Um, we, never, we never received a single thing, so I think they take care of that. You're not too fast. As you do. <laughs> um, but, look, the sound is amazing at 3,000. I opened it up and took it up to about five or 6,000. It just sounded like a racing car um, in the six-cylinder. Um, nice. And then the Trofeo amps it up even more. So, look, the, the design is, um, if you look at it very closely, it's as though they've got a lathe on it and, and chopped out bits of metal that didn't need to be there. So it is one of the lightest vehicles in its class, believe it or not. And, um, and that beautiful uh, six-cylinder instead of the V8 obviously weighs less up front. Um, they're all-wheel drive, um, all of them, including the electric, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, it is a very, very fast car. They quote 3.9 for the Modena petrol version, and then it goes down to 3.5 seconds, not to 100, for the Trofeo, the high-performance edition. Um, I, it feels faster than that. I mean, I, I think I was doing 200 plus, and I really wasn't even halfway into the throttle travel. So uh, it is a very, very quick car, and it sounded quick as well, Mandy, so you'll love that. Now, jumping into the Folgeray, um, which looks identical, really, except for a few uh, cosmetic changes and uh, especially the, the grill um, area is a little bit different, of course, the name. And they have a fantastic color called Rami Folgeri, Folgeri which was like a, a beautiful uh, dark pewter uh, matte um, uh, paintwork with gold lettering, sort of a bronze lettering, if you like, or you know, goldy bronze. And that looked fantastic. Now, um, this is a proper GT. I want to get quickly get that into the, this conversation. This is a proper four seat GT. So unlike um, a 911 where, you know, it has four seats, but God, try and get in there. Scully would not be able to get into the front seat, let alone the rear seat. So, um, yes. Um, Croft, with the interior, one of the criticisms of the MC20 has been that it's a bit basic inside, that the tech looks a little bit Alfa Romeo instead of Maserati. How does the Gran Turismo improve on that? Oh, really good. Um, uh, all digital screens, all large. Um, the, uh, the, the, the robustness uh, of uh, – I was using CarPlay a fair bit, and uh, that, that was amazing. No – 
dropouts in the middle of countryside Italy. Uh, I found it really, really good. Um, the response rates are fast. Uh, that's one of its strong points. If you read my review on carrespec.com.au, you will see that I do call out the interior as being one of the best, from coming from one of the worst to the best um, and right up there with its uh, very competitive rivals. And, you know, going back to that four-seat uh, strategy they've got, I sat in the back in the Folgeray uh, for a 50K stint uh, in all sorts of twisties, and I was actually – I couldn't believe how comfortable I was. And not only did I get a nice vision uh, through the front tunnel um, out into the windscreen, uh, I really never felt claustrophobic, and I would never have said that. And thank God I did get into the back of it because uh, I'm a huge fan of that fact that you can house four – um, for adults in quite good comfort in the back. You can't do that in any other two-door, four-seater. It's just not possible. They're not geared for that. The M8 BMW 911, forget about that. You're not going to get you, – you won't get a five-year-old into a 911 comfortably. So um, this is really unique. But the Folgeray, um, we're talking performance. Uh, this is off the charts, guys, 1,350 newton metres for this thing. And um, and we did give it the, the beans on several occasions. And uh, it, it just never – the talk just doesn't run out. I don't know how fast this thing actually – I mean, it'll do 320 k's an hour, which is extraordinary uh, for an electric uh, electric GT. Um, uh, as I was incredibly impressed, I, I suppose the only negative I had uh, in the in the albeit brief drive that I got of this vehicle was the brakes. And, the, and, and mind you, I should point out, this is a pre-production model we were driving, so it had sort of um, some wires and some buttons there. If all hell broke loose, you could hit a red button and shut the whole thing down. But, uh, so this wasn't a production version, but uh, the refinement of the steering, um, the pedal controls, the linearity of everything was very, very good, almost the same as the petrol models. And, um, uh, you know, 0 to 100 in 2.7 seconds actually felt faster than that, to be honest. Um, this is a very, very quick car. And the overtakes, we weren't overtaking one car at once. We were overtaking three cars at once. That's how quick this thing is. But, again, the brakes, the brakes, they're not massive, um, you know, like I, I would have thought for a car that does weigh a fair bit, you know, to, I think it's um, 2,220-odd kilos, somewhere around there anyway, don't quote me. But um, I, I thought that they didn't feel quite linear like the rest of the, the pedal set, and, and I did call that out to the engineer that it would be nice to offer some carbon ceramics. Uh, some big carbon ceramics, you know, like 410, mm-hmm. 420 mil carbon ceramics. I think that should be mandatory for a car that can do 320 k's an hour, accelerate in not to set, not to 102.6 or 7, I think it feels quicker, um, you need to be able to have confidence in those brakes. Um, so a couple of times I was going around corners, I hit the brakes early, uh, just to make sure I had some actual braking power under there for these really twisties that I was um, going through at a quite a rapid rate. So, um, and I think they took the advice um, quite uh, uh, quite calmly, and um, I think they're going to do. And I would be very surprised if they didn't offer an option of carbon ceramics. Well, the uh, electric review is now uh, you've given it the car expert rating of eight point eight. Yes, you can go and have a look at it now. That's a wrap for this week's podcast. Croft, apparently your feet are firmly on Australia's ground for a little while until you're jet-sitting again next month. 
At least four weeks, Mandy, which is fantastic to get on the backlog of reviews. So I, I get uh, Mr. Scully ringing me uh, on a daily basis. Uh, so when is that review coming? I'm currently working on the Honda review, Scully, before you chastise me uh, on public broadcast. But um, I'm working feverishly on it. And um, uh, we've had some distractions yesterday with other things going on. But look, I'm heading off in March, the end of March, to do the last drive of the last F-Type. Um, it's going out of production, and that, that model is uh, finally winding up. Anyway, this is the last drive of the last F-Type, uh, and Jaguar will reinvent themselves, um, apparently, um, in the next year or two with a, com- a collection of cars that you will not recognise, I've, mm-hmm. I've been told. And um, then I'm going to have a quick look at the, the Lamborghini's new V12 hybrid, which will take on cars like the uh, Ferrari SF90. And uh, that should be a very interesting uh, one-day uh, reveal, if you like. We're not driving it, but um, I'll get to drive something there, I'm sure. Now, what cars are coming up in the garage, uh, Scully? Uh, yes, Tony is the only busy person at Car Expert. Uh, oh, no, no, I, I'm absolutely one to call out this team as being the most uh, amazing team of content producers. Uh, yeah, I, I trail them. Uh, they are legends. <laughs> um, this week we have a Toyota Hiace with barn doors on the back. Oh, nice. If you want to load things with a forklift into your Hiace, you now can. Previously, it only had a lift-up tailgate. Um, the GWM Havel H6 Ultra Hybrid, uh, the Lexus RX 500H F Sport Performance, and then a couple of Mazdas, a three and a two. Um, we've also got coming to Sydney a def- Land Rover Defender 110 and a Tesla Model Y. So a real mix of cars. Um, early next week, we've got Paul off to Sweden to drive some exciting Hyundai stuff on frozen lakes. Oh. Um, and the week after that, uh, I'm driving some Volkswagen Grid Edition R models. Oh, wow. sweet. Um, and just a quick note too, I, I saw um, we were on TV a couple of days ago in, was it the, the Ute Towing Challenge? Yeah, that so cool. last year we talked very briefly about our Ute Mega Test. Um, this year we're actually announcing the results of Ute of the Year. Uh, we've already put live videos about uh, the drag race, uh, a dyno test to see which car makes the most power and torque relative to its claims and a very comprehensive towing test. We've still got an off-road test to come on YouTube and then there's other bits and pieces that you're going to have to keep an eye out for on the site. Um, But, yeah, it was one of the biggest bits of content we've ever done. Mm. Um, uh, There was a team of about 12 or 13 people. There was 12 or 13 cars over about 10 days um, between Lang Lang and Anglesey, so other sides of Victoria. Um, And and I I personally am really proud of what the team put together. Um, I think, Mandy, in the next couple of weeks, we'll get everyone on to talk more in depth about Ute of the Year, how it worked and what won. Um, In the meantime, though, keep an eye on your YouTube and your Car Expert homepage because there is plenty more good content to come. Awesome Awesome stuff. Been uh, been great from what I've seen so far. That's a wrap. Thank you, Scott Colley, and thank you, Tony Crawford. Thanks so much, Mandy and Scott. Thank you. Thanks, guys.